I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 145. We've been uh, teaching a series um, for the last several weeks that we've entitled Jesus Our High Priest. And uh, we've been going over a number of scriptures. Uh, I won't have you turn to all of them this morning. Uh, we'll start with Psalm 145, or at least I'll let you turn to Psalm 145. But while you're doing that, let me remind you of a couple other scriptures that we've used. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18 says, speaking of Jesus, the Old Testament speaking of Jesus, looking forward to the ministry that Jesus has today, talking about his position as our high priest. Now, even before I quote the scripture or refer to the scripture, let me make a couple of comments. Uh, we know that it's important for us to know about Jesus. But the question is, what do we need to know about Jesus? A lot of times people focus on, and, and you know, here we've just come through a Christmas season and, and everything uh, that uh, is talked about and focused on in the Christmas season is Jesus in the manger. Well, it's good to know that Jesus came to the earth, was born of a virgin, and, and was born in a manger. It's good to know how he came. But that's not all you need to know about Jesus. Then some folks, many people in the church, focus on Jesus in the Gospels. How Jesus came to the earth and, and in their estimation many people think that Jesus did miracles and performed signs and wonders to prove that he was the son of God or because he was the son of God they focused just on his earthly ministry well it's great to focus on Jesus earthly ministry Jesus said he that's seen me has seen the father in other words if you want to know what God's like just look at the stuff I'm doing so if we look at Jesus in his earthly ministry we can identify who God is and what he does today because God never changes and neither does Jesus but that's not all you need to know about Jesus either if that's all you knew about Jesus, you wouldn't get saved. We're going to have to know something else about Jesus, and that is we're going to have to know that he went to the cross. We're going to have to know that he paid the price for us. We're going to have to know that he was our substitute and that he opened the door to salvation, opened the door to eternal life. But folks, that's not all you need to know about Jesus either. The Bible says Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, it's better for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Holy Ghost won't come to you. And he said, I'm going to a better place. I'm going to a place that will be better for you for me to be there. The Bible tells us that Jesus was exalted after his uh, uh, resurrection. He was exalted and seated at the right hand of God. Well, what's he doing up there? Is that all we're supposed to know? That Jesus was raised from the dead and now he's been seated at the right hand of God the Father? It, folks, if that's not an important part of our Christian life, if it's not an important part of the redemption and the, the Christian walk that he instructed us to have and to, to participate in, then what in the world is he doing up there? Wouldn't it have been better if, if him being seated at the right hand of God is not just as crucial, not just as important as the fact that he went to the cross, the fact that he did miracles in his earthly ministry, and the fact that he came to the earth born of a virgin and was born in a manger. If, that's, if being seated at the right hand of God the Father is not just as important as the other things, then why doesn't Jesus come back here now and help us? That's what most people want him to do anyway. Most Christians, talking church world now, hope I'm not talking about you, but most people in the church world are praying, Jesus, come help me. Well, why doesn't Jesus come help you? Because what he's doing at the right hand of the Father is more important than him coming down here to help you. But what do we know about him seated at the right hand of God the Father? I would submit to you that, uh, that the church world as a, as a whole, by and large, knows very little of why he's seated at the right hand of the Father. The church world, by and large, knows very little about what he's doing at the right hand of the Father. What do you think Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father? Do you think after Jesus spent three years here on the earth doing miracles, doing the other stuff, paid the ultimate price, terrible death, suffered the agony of the world's sin in those three days and nights between when he was crucified and raised from the dead, after that, God patted Jesus on the back and said, you're done, son. 
sit down and eat bonbons forever. <laughs> What's he doing? Most Christians don't know. Most Christians have no idea why he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Most Christians have no clue what his high priestly ministry, which is what he's doing today. The Bible says Jesus is raised to the right hand of the Father to be your high priest. Most Christians have no clue what being our high priest means. And as a result, if you don't know something, you can't take advantage of it. That's true in every area. Certainly true in this area. If you don't know what Jesus is doing as your high priest, there's no way you can take advantage of his high priestly ministry. That's what we're trying to talk about over the last several weeks. We want to continue to do so this morning. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18, speaking of Jesus in the future, looking forward to the day that Jesus, the day that we live in now where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, it said, Therefore shall he be exalted that or so that he might show mercy. You know the reason Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father? is so he can show mercy. Now, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18, I believe it is. Is it verse 18 or is it verse 14? Let me check real quick. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us about how Jesus came to the earth, was made like unto his brethren. In other words, he came and took on flesh and blood. Well, I was wrong both, kind, both times. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. It says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him, speaking of Jesus, to be made like unto his brethren, that, here's the purpose, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Notice the adjectives that it gives to our high priest. He's merciful and he's faithful. That means you can always count on him and his mercy is his outstanding characteristic. Now Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Slow to anger and of great mercy. We've made this comment before, but I think it bears repetition. In both the Greek and the Hebrew language, Old Testament was written in Greek. I'm sorry, I've got it backwards. The Old Testament was written in Hebrews. No, it wasn't. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, not Hebrews. It was written in Hebrew. It was written by Hebrews, but it was written in Hebrew, the Hebrew language. The New Testament was written in the Greek language. In both languages, mercy and compassion are exactly the same word. Same word in Hebrew that's translated mercy throughout the Bible is translated compassion throughout the Bible. There's no difference. The same adjectives, merciful and compassionate, are the same words. Same thing's true where the Greek language is concerned. Mercy and compassion are interchangeable terms. They both mean the same things. Well, what do they mean? They mean to be full of eager yearning. They mean to love tenderly. And they mean to have pity. So when it says God is full of mercy, it means He is full of tender love for you. Now, folks, if something is full of some substance, there's no room for anything else. And that's what I want you to understand. God is full of compassion. He's full of tender love. He's full of eager yearning to do good things for you. He's full of pity for you in the things that you're weak. The Bible says that Jesus is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. In other words, He understands what you're feeling. Now, He never makes an excuse for it. See, that's the point where some people will see, they'll say, well, Jesus is touched with the feelings of my infirmities and they'll go to whining and complain it. Oh, Lord, begging, please do this, that, and the other. Nowhere does the Bible say God is touched with the feelings of your infirmities so He gives you a pass on doing the Word. I'm going to let that sink in a little bit. Nowhere 
Does the Bible say that because Jesus understands your pain, I feel your pain? Nowhere does the Bible say that Jesus feels our pain so that He gives us a pass from being a doer of the Word. No, in other words, in, 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 as a, uh, in contrast, is what I'm trying to say, in contrast, He said, here's the Word because I understand your pain. I understand your feelings. I understand your weaknesses. I understand your failures. Here's the Word. It will overcome all of them. So here where it says in Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious. The word gracious means disposed to show favors. I love that word. He's disposed to show favors. The Bible says Jesus was full of grace and truth. That means His ultimate disposition was to, be, uh, to show favors to people, to do good things to people, to provide things that they didn't deserve. That's what favor means. It means God will do things for you that you don't deserve. Think about how many times. The devil tries to make it. When you're trying to believe God for something, whether it's healing, whether it's provision, whatever it is, the devil will come and try to make it a matter of whether or not you deserve it. <clears throat> the church world is full of this, I'm so unworthy. Where did we get that? Where do you think that comes from? It comes from the devil trying to divert you from the real issue. Folks, it's never a matter of what you deserve. Mercy is not a matter of what you deserve. I can show you example after example in the Bible. Let me give you one for, for, for just a quick reference. You remember the woman that was taken in adultery? Jesus is ministering along the way and, uh, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, bring a woman that was taken in adultery. And they tell Jesus, we found this woman in adultery in the very act. Now, I don't know whose job it is to, to, to look and find those things, but they did. And they're proud of it. They found her doing the wrong thing. So they bring her before Jesus, throw her down at Jesus' feet, and they say, now the, the law commands that she be stoned and killed. What do you say? Well, justice demands that her life be taken. Justice demands that she be executed by stoning. What did Jesus do? Did he say, no, the law is wrong? No, nope, he didn't. What did he do? He turned it around and said, very simply, he, uh, first he stooped down in the ground and wrote, to, uh, stooped down on the ground and, and wrote some things in the dirt. And then he said, he that, was out, that is without sin, let him cast the first stone among you. I'm sorry, my tongue is really not working. I'm in too big of a hurry. He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Well, the Bible says that they were convicted. Jesus must have been writing sins, names of sins on the ground. That's the only thing I know of that would have brought conviction to them. He may have been writing things down that they were guilty of, that they deserve some kind of punishment or penalty for. But anyway, the end result is they were convicted, the Bible says, and they went out from the oldest to the youngest. As we get older, we kind of develop a little bit more mercy as we go. Young people are usually more judgmental. They're usually quicker to judge. I know I was when I was younger. So they left, and Jesus... Uh, uh, said to the woman after everybody was gone, she said, woman, where are your accusers? She said, sir, I have none. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, what did Jesus do? Jesus took mercy to provide her what she needed, not gave her what she deserved. Jesus would have been justified just as the religious leaders would have been to say, yeah, that's right. The law says stoner. Go ahead. But he didn't. He showed mercy. Folks, that's the difference between mercy and judgment. So many times, 
Christians focus on the judgment of God. Well, there is judgment. There is judgment coming. There no, without a question of a doubt, a shadow of a doubt, there is no question that judgment is coming upon the earth to those that have rejected Jesus. But not to the church. Yeah, but Pastor Mike doesn't say judgment should first begin in the house of God. Yeah, by the church. Judge yourself lest you be judged. Jesus in, uh, in one place in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, I believe it is, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's already gone through a whole list of woe unto you scribes and Pharisees because you do this. Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees because you do this. He talks about how you compass the land and sea to make a proselyte out of one person and then make them twofold the child of hell is yourself. One thing after another, he's saying, woe to you religious leaders. God really doesn't like religion, folks. He really does not like religion. Now, I know that you can speak of religion in a positive way, meaning a relationship with God, but I'm talking about religion like we're accustomed to in the modern-day church where it's all this, don't do this or else God will get you kind of stuff. God hates that. And so he says to the, to the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. He said, because you pay tithes of, of uh, anise and cumin and different spices. Think about that, folks. Ladies, if you go to the store and buy cinnamon, According to the Old Testament law, you'd have to take 10% of that cinnamon and bring it to church. And in the smallest things, they would, do, they would just strain it at every little possible thing to, to operate according to the Word so that they could say, we're doing it right. But Jesus said, you pay tithes of your spices, yet you omit the weightier matters of the law like judgment, mercy, and faith. What is Jesus saying is more important? He said judgment, mercy, and faith. Now, what judgment is he talking about? Is he talking about the judgment of God? No, he's talking about them judging themselves. That's what they're missing out on. They're trying to pre present themselves as the ones that do it the right way, do it like us. And he's saying you're not judging yourselves. Now, according to the Old Covenant, they were to judge themselves so that they would see their need of a Savior. Well, what about us? Are we supposed to judge ourselves? Yeah, you better believe it. What are we supposed to judge ourselves for? Folks, if we don't judge ourselves, then we won't keep ourselves in the love of God. If we don't judge ourselves, then we won't stay walking in love. That's what I mean by that, keeping yourself in the love of God. If we don't judge ourselves as to our attitudes and our actions toward other people, then we'll stray away from the love of God and we'll get out of the blessings of God. So you better believe we're supposed to judge ourselves. Sure we are. Folks, grace was never meant to stop the church from judging themselves and repenting and walking in love. This idea that grace just covers everything, well, it does. Thank God it does cover everything so that you can judge yourself and walk in love and repent when you don't. That's what it's all for. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying judging ourselves, examining ourselves. Paul talked it this way when taking the Lord's Supper. He said examine yourself. The same thing. He's talking about make sure that you're doing the right things. Make sure you're operating according to the love of God. So Jesus said the most important things were judgment, judging yourselves, mercy, and faith. We better get back to Psalm 145 or I'll never finish this. The Lord is gracious. He's disposed to show favors. Not give you what you deserve, but give you good things. He's disposed to show favors. He's full of compassion, full of compassion. That means if he's full of tender love, there's no hate towards you. He doesn't have any. He doesn't have any disgust towards you. He doesn't have any contempt towards you. 
He's full of compassion, full of tender love, full of eager yearning. He's slow to anger. <laughs> That's good news. Slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all. Now, if you'll let the devil help you on that verse, he'll say the Lord is good to everybody but you. Why? Because you don't deserve it. That's not what it's about, folks. The Lord is good to all. And His tender mercies are over all His works. Over all His works. Now, notice what it says. It says, speaking of Jesus, speaking of Jesus doing the will of God, it says that everything Jesus does, every work that Jesus performed was according to His tender mercies. In other words, He didn't give anybody what they deserved. He gave them mercy. Look with me to Mark chapter 1. We've, we've gone over some of these scriptures and, and I'll, I'll try to hit them real quick because I want to go a little further this morning. But we've seen from numerous scriptures how that the mercy of God when Jesus was here on the earth revealing to us what God's really like, the mercy of God encompassed not just forgiveness of sins because everything that I've said so far this morning religion will agree with. Yes, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God to be merciful unto us. His tender mercies are over all of His works. But religion says that work is forgiveness of sins. It's not works plural. It's the one work of forgiving sins. After that, you're on your own. After that, you never know what God's going to do. After that, sure, God can heal, but you never know if He's going to. So religion takes the works that Jesus did. The Bible says, For this purpose was Jesus manifested, the Son of Man was manifested, that He might destroy the works, plural, of the devil. Now the modern day church, the religious world, has turned that into the one work of mercy, and that is forgiveness of sins. But that's not the way it was when Jesus was here. And remember, Jesus said, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father, who never changes. Mark chapter 1, the leper comes to Him and says, Master, I was uh, reading and beginning in verse 40. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him and kneeling down to him and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. What's he saying? I believe you can. I just don't know if you will. That is the picture of the modern day church. Yeah, I believe you can, Lord. I just don't know if you will. Well, how does God respond in that situation? Well, the only way we're going to know is by seeing what Jesus did. And if Jesus told us the truth, that when we see him, we see the Father, then we'll know what God's attitude is toward those who take that same position today. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth His hand and touched Him and said unto Him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as He had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from Him and He was cleansed. We've looked at numerous scriptures along this line. Let's look at a couple of others real quick. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. This is after uh, John the Baptist is, uh, uh, is beheaded by Herod. It says, uh, when Jesus heard of it, verse 13, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, in other words, heard that's where he went, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. Now, what does Jesus' action manifest in what when jesus was moved with compassion toward the multitudes what resulted he says that he was moved with compassion toward them and healed their sick 
We looked at Matthew chapter 20 where the two blind guys are asking Jesus for compassion. Oh, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus said, uh, Jesus called them to him. They came to him and Jesus said, what will you that I do unto you? Which means mercy and compassion wasn't just forgiveness of sins. They asked for mercy and Jesus said, what area do you need, do you need it? What kind of mercy do you want? And they said, Lord, that we might receive our sight. And Jesus touched their, their eyes and they were healed. It tells us time after time after time. Now, folks, what the Bible doesn't tell us is what the modern-day church says. The modern-day church, religion, when I say modern-day church, I'm talking about religion as a whole. Religion says that Jesus healed to prove that He was the Son of God. You can't ever find any situation, any circumstance, any individual healing where Jesus said, I'm healing you to prove that I'm the Son of God. But you can find over and over and over again where Jesus healed because He was moved with compassion. Remember, compassion is tender love, to be full of eager yearning and pity. In other words, he didn't give them what they deserved. He gave them what God wanted them to have, the good blessings, the good things that God desired for them. We see extended beyond healing. Jesus, the Bible tells us in one place that uh, the multitude followed Jesus and had been with him for three days. And so Jesus looked on the multitude and told his disciples, I have compassion on them because they've been here for three days and nights and they haven't had anything to eat. So he multiplies the loaves and fishes and feeds 5,000 of them, plus the women and children. 5,000 men plus however many other women and children are there. Well, you know those men are not going to be out there unless their wives have made them go. I, I don't know how big the crowd is. It could have been 15, could have been 20,000 people. I don't know. But we know it was at least 5,000 men. We see also in Mark chapter 5 that the madman in the, in the region of Gadara, he was in the tombs. He was demon-possessed. He's in the tombs. He's crying. He's cutting himself. They, nobody can chain him. He breaks the chains. Nobody can bind him up. He, he gets out. Nothing can be done about this guy. When Jesus comes into that region, this fellow comes, and the evil spirits speak through him to Jesus. Jesus casts them out, sets them free. And then when the guy, after he's set free, the guy says to Jesus, I want to go with you. Jesus says, no, go back to your own country, the region of Decapolis. Go back to your own company, country, and tell them how the Lord has had compassion on you. So Jesus identifies, I set you free because of the mercy of God. The end result of that is the guy goes back and he tells everybody about it. Multitudes come to Jesus, and Jesus has one of the most tremendous ministry uh, crusade campaigns that we have record of in the Bible. It even tells us about the maimed being restored. People were healed right and left. The multitudes were healed. The maimed were made whole. The lame walked. Blind eyes were opened. Everything took place. Why? Because he published the Lord's mercy. Now, where did he go? Jesus didn't say, now go tell them that you deserve this and that's why I did it for you. No, he said, go tell them about how the Lord has had compassion upon you. Had compassion upon you. Now, folks, that's the point where people will say, all right, if Jesus is raised to the, the right hand of God to be a merciful high priest, and if his mercy really does mean healing, if his mercy really does mean provision, like was with the 5,000 when he multiplied the loaves and fishes, if the mercy of God really is deliverance, if it includes all those three things and not just forgiveness of sins, then why doesn't Jesus do it for me like he did it for those people that were here on the earth when he was here on the earth? Why don't we have Jesus showing the same thing toward me that he showed toward people in his earthly ministry? Why not? Why doesn't he just do it? Pastor Mike, tell me. I want the mercy of God. Tell me, why doesn't God just do it for me? 
All right? Let me show you about the mercy of God. When you talk just about mercy, when you talk about just the goodness of God and nothing else, then people come away with that, okay, well, it's all up to God then. But it never was all up to God. I'm going to show you some things that triggered God's mercy being shown. Look with me over to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Here's a guy that comes to Jesus for mercy and Jesus questions him. He has to make an adjustment with this fellow so the mercy of God can be shown. Mark chapter 9, let's start reading in verse 14. Jesus is coming back from the mountain of transfiguration. And there's a a big stir, a big um, commotion going on with the disciples that were left. The only three disciples that went with Jesus to the mount of transfiguration were Peter, James, and John. So the other nine are there with whatever other company of, uh, of his disciples that followed him. Verse 14, and when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. That never was a good thing. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question that ye with them? And one of the multitudes answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he tearest him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out. And they could not, could not, could not. Now, folks, if you back up both in Mark's gospel and compare it to Matthew's gospel, you'll find out that at this point in time, Jesus has already called his disciples to them. He has given them. uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 is a good example. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 says he called the 12 disciples unto him and he gave them power to cast out devils and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. He gave them power. They've got the power. But it's not operating. It doesn't say they wouldn't. It says they couldn't. Now, I made a statement a little bit ago where I said it never was a good thing when the scribes and the Pharisees were questioning the disciples. Jesus never had a problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. Why did the disciples? Very simply, the knowledge that Jesus had, not only of God, not only of His purpose, and not only of how things work, but the knowledge that Jesus had of the truth that included those things enabled Him to answer every religious question there is. And folks, the same thing's true today. The same thing is true today. You can answer every religious objection by the truth of the word. There, I heard somebody not too long ago. It's been, well, not too long ago. I don't know how long it's been. I heard somebody say on the radio, I heard him say, well, I'd like to debate one of these faith preachers. But you can't ever get them to debate. Because I would take them apart with the word. I almost wrecked my car trying to get the number of that radio station. (laughs) Talk to me, big boy. Let's talk about what the Bible really says. But see, religion puts it off like, oh, we've got the answers. We've got it all figured out. Folks, the only figuring out there is is accepting the word to be true. Now, I'm glad I didn't have the number because it wouldn't have done any good. I'm not going to convince this guy. There's no way anybody's going to change their mind through a debate. I've been there, tried that. It just doesn't work. But this notion, 
that, oh, well, you've got to be careful. There are certain questions you can't answer. There aren't any questions you can't answer. There just aren't any. So the disciples couldn't, but they had the power. Now explain to me, somebody explain to me, if they had the power, why couldn't they do it? There's only one possible answer, and that is there was something they didn't know. There was something missing in their knowledge that would have activated the power, but since it's missing and they didn't know it was missing, the power didn't work. Now, do you think when Jesus gave them power to cast out devils and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1, do you think that Jesus was thinking, I mean, so many people think Jesus knew the future, he knew everything, he was the son of God, he knew everything, and so do you, if that was the case, do you think that Jesus intended for everybody except this guy to get well? Everybody except this guy to be delivered? When Jesus said, you've got the power to cast out devils and to heal all manner of sickness and disease, wouldn't that indicate to you that means that'll cover everything? Well, why didn't it cover this? Because of something they didn't know. And this is the very same thing that most people don't know today, and that's why the mercy of God is not shown in the way God wants to. It's not the matter of not being God's will. It's a matter of the power can't flow unless certain conditions are met. So Jesus answers him, verse 19, and says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Now who is Jesus talking to? It's real easy to read this uh, carelessly and think that Jesus is talking to the disciples. You ragged bunch of guys, I gave you the power. What is wrong with you? That's not what it says. He's talking to the Father. The Father is the one that's explaining the situation. Jesus answered him, the Father, and says, O faithless generation. Who is Jesus addressing as being the one that is faithless or without faith? The Father. Now, he'll explain to the disciples later on after this is all done, they'll come to him privately and say, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus will say, because of your unbelief. Now, why would they have unbelief? They've done this before. Why would it not work this time? Why would there be some kind of problem with this? I can only surmise what the case is. You judge it for yourself. But perhaps they tried it not knowing the Father wasn't in faith and it didn't work and that shook their faith. Makes sense, doesn't it? Now, I can't say for a certainty that that was the case, but it's possible. But now, at least they've gotten over in unbelief. Jesus addresses that later on too. But here, Jesus is speaking to the Father and says, you're the one that is without faith. Why is faith necessary for the mercy of God? Folks, you find almost, without, with very few exceptions, you will find that in every case that talks about the mercy of God being shown, you'll either see faith identified or you'll see faith in action. The leper in Mark chapter 1 that we just read about, Jesus, he came to Jesus and he said, I believe you can. I just don't know if you will. Why was Jesus moved with compassion? Because he's, he's operating on all the faith that he has available to him. And Jesus answers the question, I will. When Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes for the, the 5,000, what happened? They have committed themselves to following his ministry. They must believe in him because they've been without food for three days. Folks, I see people getting antsy when I start getting toward lunchtime. Three days without food. They must believe something in him. Jesus had compassion because of their commitment to him and who he is. 
Even the madman from Gadara. The Bible says that when he came to that place, the madman came and rushed toward Jesus and fell down before him and worshipped him. Now, who do you think did that? The evil spirits in him? I'm not aware that evil spirits are worshiping Jesus. Are you? The evil spirit spoke and said, have you come to torment us before the time? But it's the man. It was the will of the individual that came and fell down before Jesus and worshiped him. You can even see faith in operation in the man that was possessed with the devils. He knew who Jesus was. We don't know how he knew, but he knew who Jesus was and he fell down and worshiped him. That's an act of faith, folks. Worshiping God is the greatest act of faith you can show. In almost every case where the mercy of God is shown, the two blind men, the two blind men come to Jesus and they say, what did they say to, uh, about him? What did they say to him? They said, O thou son of David, what is that that's calling him the Messiah? Have mercy on us. Jesus said, what do you need? I love that. I love that. Jesus didn't just say, well, okay, he, today's healing day. There's, there's healing for your eyes. Or he didn't say, tomorrow is healing day. Today's just forgiveness of sins day. So come back tomorrow. He said, what do you need? Folks, the mercy of God will go in any area you need it. When there's faith. Jesus said to the man, oh, faithless generation, how, mu how long must I suffer you? Bring him to me. And they brought him to him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tore him, and he fell on the ground, talking about the sun, he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And the man answers, the father answers, of or since he was a child. And oftentimes gives him more information. Oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What's he doing? He's asking for the mercy of God. Straight out, he's asking for the mercy of God. If you can do anything. Now, I want you to notice something, folks. The fact that the Father tells Jesus more information about how bad this has been. Jesus just simply says, how long has it been this way? And this guy goes into detail about how bad it is. What does that show you that he's focused on? The problem. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You talk about the problem more than you talk about God being the answer. You'll have more problem than you've got God. He is showing where he's at. He's showing his lack of faith. And so he comes to the place and he says, Jesus, if you can do anything, have mercy on us. What does Jesus do when he's questioned and asked for mercy? Jesus knows that he can't show mercy, that the mercy of God can't result in deliverance for this boy unless he changes the man's position, the father's position, from unbelief over to faith. He's got to make a complete reversal. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. What's he saying? He's saying, you want the mercy of God? You want the mercy of God to deliver your son? Easy. All you've got to do is believe. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Jesus does not say, too bad for you. You've shown such unbelief. I wouldn't do it for you now if I could. This man goes from complete unbelief over into a little bit of faith. Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Can I ask you a question? Why is faith necessary for the mercy of God? Because mercy is not about what you deserve. 
Why is faith necessary? Because the Bible says that without faith it's impossible to please God. That's Hebrews 11.6. James said, without faith it's impossible to receive from God. Folks, the eternal law of God is that you receive from His hand by faith. And you can't receive any other way. Now there's no point in trying to change the system. That's the way it works. So rather than the pattern of the modern day church continuing to do things time after time after time that don't work, like begging God, like complaining about how bad things are, this guy's doing that, that's not working for him. Instead of doing the same things that don't work, why don't we turn it around to the things that do work? Anybody that's a part of the family of God got there by believing that Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead. And as a result of that believing, just because the Bible says so, that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, we then confess with our mouths that faith. We confess Jesus as our Lord. We say something that exhibits that belief. I believe Jesus went to the cross. Well, folks, how do you, what's the basis for that belief? You weren't there. You didn't see it. There's only one way that you know, and that's because the Bible says so. You just choose to accept it to be true. Furthermore, you choose to accept the method that God says you're saved by accepting that Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins, believe that he was raised from the dead, and then confess him as your Lord and Savior. That's the pattern that brings every person into the family of God. What is that? The Bible says that's faith. Believe in your heart and say with your mouth. What has Jesus got to get this guy toward? He's got to get him saying something contrary to what he has been saying because up to now all he's been saying is they can't help me and the problem is too big. So what has he got to get this guy to do? He's got to get this guy over into believing. How will he know he get, knows when he gets there? How will Jesus know? How will Jesus know you're in faith when you come to him for mercy in your situation? How is Jesus going to recognize whether or not a person is in unbelief or in faith. The Father says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine belief. Now personally, I wish he'd just shut his mouth after, Lord, I believe. But this guy is so used to talking, he has to qualify. He says, Lord, I believe, but it's not much. But apparently that's enough for God. Apparently that was enough. All he does the change that this man makes is a change of his words. It's a change of his words. He says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him and was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. What was the thing that changed the situation from what couldn't be done to something that provided deliverance for this boy? The father's words. In other words, you could say, when he, because he asked, what verse is it? He asked in verse uh, 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Well, folks, is there any question about what God can do? Does anybody really have that question? Is there any question about what Jesus can do? what power he has available? Well, then that's not really the issue then. The issue is he's asking, 
Have compassion on me. Have compassion on me. Have compassion on my son. Deliver my son through your mercy, through your compassion. What does Jesus have to do to trigger that compassionate work to be done? He's got to get the guy's uh, words or confession to change. Because up to this point, he's just confessing nobody can help. It's too big. But as soon as he turns those words around. Remember Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1? It says, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is the high priest. He's a merciful and faithful high priest who offers to God your words. That's all he's got to work with, folks. It's not your thoughts that get it done. It's not your feelings toward God that get it done. The Bible says by your words you'll be justified or you'll be condemned. The Bible says it's by your words because your words are an expression of your faith. It's by your words that you receive from God. Let me show you another example. Matthew chapter 9. We'll look at this real quick because I want you to see some other things. Matthew chapter 9. Do you understand where I'm going with this, folks? Matthew chapter 9. We'll start in verse 27. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And when he was coming to the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said unto them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now they said the same things the other two blind guys said in Matthew chapter 20. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. But Jesus seems to detect something about these guys that he has to question. Just as Jesus knew in Mark chapter 9 what the problem was with the, the, the power not casting out the devil that possessed this little boy, Jesus seems to sense something or recognize something about this situation too. So these guys say exactly the same thing. They say exactly the right thing. They say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. And then Jesus questions them. He said, do you believe I can? And they said unto him, yea, Lord. Now I want you to realize... They asked for mercy. Jesus answers, verse 29, He touches their eyes and says to them, According to your faith, be it unto you. In other words, the mercy of God is going to come to you according to your faith. And faith is always identified by the words that you speak. The mercy of God is going to be shown in your life to the degree that you speak the mercy of God. The mercy of God to heal is going to be shown in your life to the degree that you speak the healing mercy of God. Provision is going to be shown in your life to the degree that you speak the providing mercy of God. Deliverance is going to be shown in your life to the degree that you speak the delivering mercy of God. Just like salvation is shown in your life to the degree that you speak Jesus as your Lord, which is the mercy of God. Let me show you a couple of examples from the Old Testament. Turn back with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You'll know these things. We've taught these time and time and time again. Well, Pastor Mike, why, don't you, why do you keep preaching this? I'm going to keep preaching it until everybody gets it, which means we've got a long way to go. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It tells us about Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Jehoshaphat is being besieged by five enemy armies. Five enemy armies have come and, and, and arrayed themselves against him. They're stuck. They've got an army, but their army is no match for these other people. They pray. First thing they do, they call a prayer and fast session. We've got to get an answer from God. You ever been in that kind of place 
where things were so critical, man, I've got to get an answer from God right now. The Bible tells you how to get it. They began to pray. I love their prayer. They said, starts off in verse 6, Jehoshaphat prays and he says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? <laughs> that right there would, would, would classify and qualify him as a heretic in the modern day church. The very idea, some would say, to question God. It's a good question. Are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over the kingdoms of the heathen? In other words, are you not bigger than our enemies? You think God gets mad at this, folks? God delights in somebody standing up. God, I'm convinced. God stands up in heaven and says, Yes, finally! Somebody that's willing to see it the way that it really is. Are you not God in heaven, the prayer was? Do you not rule over the kingdoms of the heathens? And in your hand is there not power and might so that nobody is able to withstand thee? Man, you're singing God's song when you start talking like that. Are you not our God who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before the people of Israel and gave it to thy seed of Abraham, thy friend forever? In other words, they're saying, isn't this your land? Folks, I read this stuff and I can hardly contain myself. If I could preach and run at the same time, I'd do it. And then he tells what the people of Israel did. And they, Israel, dwelt therein and built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil comes upon us as with the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. That's a big, long question. Is this not your land? And didn't we dedicate this temple? by your will, saying, when trouble comes upon us and we call out unto you, you'll answer and help us. Isn't that who you said you were? And now behold, because of all these things, and now behold, folks, every one of those things are things that God said about Himself to His people. They based their prayer exactly on God's Word in previous times. Which is exactly the foundation that your prayer should be based on every time you pray. And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou would not let Israel invade. I like this part too. They said the only reason this is a problem is because when we took the promised land, you wouldn't let us invade them. This is your fault, God. This wouldn't be a problem if you'd let us take care of them when we first came here. Now the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession not our possession your possession this place is yours aren't you going to do something about this to come to cast us out of thy possession which thou has given us to inherit O our god wilt thou not judge them didn't you say you were on our side now aren't you going to do something about this now i want you to realize where they're coming from i, I get folks i understand very clearly that the modern day church religion says that this is an arrogant prayer. I understand that. You pray like this, and, and Christians will condemn you for praying. Oh, the very idea. To say something like that to God. It worked. God didn't seem to be too upset about it because He answered their prayer. All they're doing is bringing His Word back to them, back to Him. That's exactly what God said to do. He said, let us plead together. Put me in remembrance. 
Now here's their attitude toward themselves. They said, O oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company. We can't do it. Didn't you say you'd do what we couldn't do? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. We're not only too weak. We're too ignorant to know. We don't have the strength and we don't have the answers. That's why we need you. We have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Don't tell me that doesn't warm the heart of God. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, seeking who he can show himself strong on behalf of. He just found a group. His eyes stopped running because he just found somebody. The Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came upon a certain person and he prophesied. And he said, don't be dismayed for reason of this battle because this battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. Woo! That's good news. Then comes the rest of the message. Tomorrow, go out against them. Oh, man. Why? This battle is yours. Let me just stay home. That's the way we want it to be, isn't it? Now, the battle is yours when you go out against them. The battle is the Lord, excuse me, when you go out against them. Your job is to go out. God's job is to take care of the battle. Go out against them. And if, in case you don't know where they are, they're down by the cliff of Ziz. Next morning comes around. I'm sure they had a high-heeled party time after the, the message came. But then morning comes, and what do we do now? I don't feel as excited as I did yesterday. Where is that prophet? Say that again. That's what we want. That's the way we like it. Jehoshaphat takes control and he says, Now, believe in what the Lord said. Believe in his prophets and we'll get the results that he said we'd have. So what does he do? Verse 21, And when he consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord that they should praise the beauty of holiness. And they went out for, before the army and to say. Please notice this, folks. Here's the whole reason I'm showing you this story. Notice what they said and notice what they sang. Now remember what we said before. Jesus shows us the principle. Jesus shows us the principle that the mercy of God will be extended towards you to the degree that you speak His mercy. Because faith is exhibited, it's shown by the words of your mouth. So your words activate His mercy. The mercy is there. God is ready. He is full of eager yearning. But it takes your words to activate that mercy and the power that that mercy can bring. They're in a situation where they don't have any might. They don't have any power. They don't even know what to do, but their eyes are on the Lord. So the word of the Lord comes. And folks, this is how God always answers. He tells you what His word is. Here's the result. The Bible always tells you the result. It tells you by Jesus' stripes you were healed. But now you've got to go out and face the sickness. How do you face it? Just like they did. They began to sing. They began to say, Praise the Lord for His mercy endures forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord said, Ambush them. In other words, when they said that His mercy was theirs, that's when His mercy activated power. When they said His mercy was toward them, in their battle, that's when the power of God was activated. Now, where did they learn this? Turn back with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Did they just stumble upon this? No, no, no. 
They found it honestly. Second Chronicles chapter 5. You remember when they were talking about how they built a temple and dedicated it to the Lord and said, when we get in trouble and call on your name, you'll answer us? Where did that come from? It came from Second Chronicles chapter 5 when they dedicated Solomon's temple. Let me start reading here on the day that they dedicated the temple, Solomon's temple. In verse 13 it says, And it came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, What did they say when they dedicated the temple? Praise the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever that then, when, after they said it, then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. What's it saying? It's saying when you say, when you sing, when you praise God, saying, for the Lord is good and His mercy endures forever, that activates the power for whatever battle you're in. That's when the presence of God comes on the scene. That's when the presence of God comes on the scene. I've got to show you one more. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. You knew I was going there, didn't you, Mark? I wish I could tell you that I found this myself, but I didn't. Mark Nayroth over here sitting. Take a bow, Mark. Tell everybody, show, wave your hands. Let everybody know who you are. Mark is one of the most studious people I know, maybe that ever lived. And Mark was reading the other day in the Septuagint, as we all do. <laughs> you remember the story over in, uh, in, in Daniel chapter 3? It tells a story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It tells a story about how these three guys that were taken captive when the Babylonians took control of Israel and, and, and conquered them, these guys have, uh, have been trained in the, the king's palace. They have positions of authority. Nebuchadnezzar goes nuts. In, in the sense that he starts thinking that he's really some hot stuff and, and he builds a statue to himself and, and commands that everybody in the kingdom has to bow down three times a day when the music sounds to, to worship his statue. And, uh, and as a result, you know, everybody that's trying to curry favor with the king does that, but not these guys. They won't do it because they're commanded by the law of Moses that there's only one God and he's the only one that you worship. So they've got the same dilemma that you and I face, and that is do we do what's expedient so that we kind of get along with everybody else, or do we do what God's Word commands us to do? Well, they did what God's Word commands them to do, and the Word got out. They're not bowing down before Nebuchadnezzar's statue. So Nebuchadnezzar brings them in. Hey, we've got a real problem here, folks. You, you three are not bowing down to my statue. And so he asked them the question. He says, is it true, verse 14, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image which I have set up? Here's my solution. King's talking. He says, now, if you're ready, notice the word if. Notice the word if. If means conditional, right? If. He says, now, if you're ready at what time you hear the sound of the music, the, the, the instruments that play that signal the worship. He said, if you're ready and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, well, then we'll just count this as never having happened. We'll just forget all the other times that you didn't. We'll just count this as done. But, here's the if, but, if you do, it's, it's all done. We'll just pass over the rest. But, if you don't, if you don't worship 
You'll be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And here's his question. That's, that's the only, let's stop there for just a moment. He said, now here's the, here's the deal. If when the music sounds, if you fall down and worship the image, we'll just say we're all done, everything's good. But if you don't, I'm going to cast you in the fiery furnace. Then he asked the question, trying to emphasize the fiery furnace part, I guess. He said, and who is that God that will deliver you out of my hand? Who will deliver you from the burning fiery furnace? Well, now there's a question on the table. And that is, are you going to worship? Here's the condition. If you do when the music sounds, then everything's fine. If you don't, I'm going to cast you into the fiery furnace. And who's going to save you then? So the three guys answered. And they said, uh, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said unto King Nebuchadnezzar, or said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we don't have to think about this. Why, why don't they have to think about it? Because they've already thought about it. They knew what not bowing down to the image at the time where the music sounded uh, all the time before. They know what that means. If we get caught on this, the king's going to threaten to kill us. So we've already prepared our answer. Folks, that is always the way to go into a battle. Be prepared up front. Know what you're going to do when the devil threatens you. So he says, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. If it be so. Now, what's the if? The if is back up in verse 15 where he said, if when the music sounds you fall down, then we won't do anything about it. But if you don't, then I'm going to cast you in the burning fiery furnace. Their response is, now, if it be so. In other words, if you do throw us in the fiery furnace, your question is who's going to save us? Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, the if not is not if... The way I heard this preached as a kid growing up in Sunday school is, if you, if you throw us in, we believe God's going to save us, but if God doesn't save us, we're still not going to worship your image. Well, folks, that's kind of a given, isn't it? I mean, isn't it? I mean, really, is that what they're saying? But if God doesn't deliver us from your burning, fiery furnace, we still ain't worshiping your image. Really? Yeah, that would mean you're the black, greasy spot in the middle of the furnace, wouldn't it? That's stupid. Where in the world did we get the idea that we think God's going to save us, but if He doesn't, we're still not going to worship your image? Come on. No, the if is whether they throw him into the ver- throw the three guys into the burning fiery furnace. The if is on the is on the um, uh, the king's side. He's the one that decides whether they get thrown in. And they're saying very simply, if you throw us in, God will save us. If you don't throw us in, we're still not going to worship your image. Now, how do we know that's the truth? Because look at the result that it had in Nebuchadnezzar. It says, verse nineteen. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded that the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these three men were bound in their coats, their hose, and their hats, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew these men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What made Nebuchadnezzar so mad? They said, if you throw us in, God will save us. If you don't throw us in, we're still not worshiping. 
If they had said the other, if they had said, well, we believe God's going to save us, but if he doesn't, we're not going to worship your image, he would have laughed and said, well, let's see who wins out here on this thing. He wouldn't have gotten mad about that. He would have said, okay, here's the door. There's the ferny, fire, uh, the ferny fiery furnace. There's the burning fiery furnace. Your choice. You, we'll see. You said you think God will save you, but maybe not. So, okay, let's figure it out. Only one way we'll know for sure. No, it says he got mad. The only reason the king is going to get so mad is if they're defying his power and they're saying God's bigger than you. And Nebuchadnezzar said, we'll see. Now, here's where the Septuagint comes in. Now, the Septuagint is the Hebrew into the Greek, into the English. And it predates the King James translation about 1,800 years, 17, 1,800 years, something like that. Every, uh, uh, every, not every, 95% of the times in the New Testament where the writers of the New Testament and the gospel writers refer to an Old Testament scripture, they're quoting the Septuagint because it was written in Greek, the common language of the day. So the, the, the Septuagint has a wealth of information when you compare it against the English translation. It's kind of tough to get through. But Mark the other day sent me a note after, we, after the message was preached on Wednesday night. He said, look what I found in Septuagint. Let me show you what he found. We're going to start reading here in verse uh, 23. We just finished up with these three men were bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. I'm going to read from the Septuagint from this point. It says, Then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace and walked in the midst of the flame, singing praise to God and blessing the Lord. Boy, I wish that had been in the King James. And Nebuchadnezzar heard them singing praises, and he wondered and rose up in haste and said to his nobles, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they said to the king, Yes, O king. And the king said, But I see four men loose and walking in the midst of the fire, and there is no harm happened to them, and the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God. What did these three guys do when they were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace? They're singing praises unto God. What are they looking for? They're looking for mercy. <laughs> Lord, we're going to need some mercy here. We got a burning fiery furnace coming up. We're going to need the mercy of God. We're going to need deliverance. We're going to need something that we don't have the power to do. How did they activate the power to stay well, to stay whole in the midst of a burning fiery furnace that has already killed the guys that threw them in because it was so hot? We know the problem's not with the fire, don't we? I love this. They walked in the midst of the, of the flame, singing praise to God, blessing the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar heard them singing praises. And Nebuchadnezzar heard them singing praises. That sounds like Acts 16. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Folks, what I want you to understand is that singing praises to God is what activates His mercy. Because praise is the highest type of faith. Praise says it's done. I can't see it done. It doesn't feel like it's done. I have no physical evidence that it's done, but God's Word says it's done. Praise says it's done. And you look in the Old Testament. We saw it in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 when they dedicated the temple. We saw it in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 when Jehoshaphat was besieged by the five enemy armies. They're singing praises about the mercy of God. And when they began to sing it to praise, 
Folks, something happens when you're singing the praise. Something happens when you praise God for His mercy. Something happens when you take it out of, here's what I deserve, and put it in, Lord, here's who you are. Why? Because the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. Jeremiah says, all is the longest word in the Bible. It's not. Great is the longest word. Consider the high priest and apostle of your profession. God only has to work with what you speak. And he really gets to work when you sing. I'll stand. What are you doing in the midst of your burning, fiery furnace? So many Christians just are, are in the middle of their problem. They're saying, oh, God, why'd you throw me in here? He didn't. What are you doing in the middle of your test? What are you doing in the middle of your trial? James says, count it all joy. When you fall into diverse temptations. That means burning fiery furnaces. That means when you're surrounded with armies and, and enemies that are bigger than you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep doing what I have been doing. I'm going to sing praise unto God. I'm going to sing about the mercy of the Lord. I'm going to sing God's mercy endures forever. I'm going to sing about the fact that the word of God is true no matter what it looks like no matter what it feels like, no matter what anybody else says. I'm going to sing about the merciful and faithful high priest that shows his mercy unto me no matter what, no matter what I've done, no matter how I've missed it, no matter what, his mercy is there, his forgiveness is there. I'm his child. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9 says, Remember the Lord who keepeth covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. A thousand generations. Now folks, modern day preachers, modern day religion will tell you the mercy of God has been altered. It hasn't. In Jesus' day, the mercy of God was healing. It was deliverance. It was provision. But it's not like that anymore. It's just forgiveness of sins. That's not true. The mercy of God hasn't changed. It endures forever. He keeps covenant and mercy with those who keep His commandments. In other words, those who op operate in faith for a thousand generations. A thousand generations. Folks, you're still in the time period for mercy. It hadn't been a thousand generations since the law of Moses was given. It hasn't been a thousand generations since God made a covenant with Abraham. You're still in the, in the right time zone. For the Lord is good and His mercy endures forever. For the Lord is good and His mercy endures forever. For the Lord is good and His mercy endures forever. Now think about your situation when we say this. Think about what you need the mercy of God for. Think about your, His mercy towards you in your individual situation. For the Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. For the Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. For the Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. For the Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. For the Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. For the Lord is good, and His mercy endures forever. 
For the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. For the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. For the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Now say it like this. For the Lord is good to me. And his mercy toward me endures forever. For the Lord is good to me. And his mercy to me endures forever. For the Lord is good to me. And his mercy to me endures forever. For the Lord is good to me. And his mercy to me endures forever. Lord, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. You are so good, and your mercy, your tender love, your pity, being full of eager yearning, endures forever. Oh, we bless you, Father. We love you so much. Thank you for your mercy. We declare that we're redeemed by the work of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. We declare, Father, we're healed by His stripes. We declare that the chastisement of our peace was upon Jesus. We declare, Father, that we're free by the truth of the Word. Therefore, Father, we declare that we're righteous in the name of Jesus. We declare that we're healed in the name of Jesus. We declare your provision in our lives, in every area of our lives, in the name of Jesus. We declare our freedom in the name of Jesus. Thank you for your mercy, Father. Thank you for your mercy toward us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy. Blessed be the name of Jesus. 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 Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Let's do what they did. Let's sing. The Lord is good and His mercy endures forever. You know that little song? For the Lord, He is good, and His mercy endureth forever. For the Lord, He is good, and His mercy endureth forever. For the Lord, 
He is good, and His mercy endureth forever. For the Lord, He is good, and forever His mercy endures. Well, you get the idea. You know what I've got in my heart, folks? I, I, I'm sorry for keeping you long. But you know what I keep having in my heart? That God wants to do so much for you. And all he's looking for is the opportunity to do it. Now, he doesn't create that opportunity. We do. He wants to do more for you than you want him to do. That's what being full of eager yearning means. He wants to be better to you than you want him to be. It's so big on the inside of me. He's just looking for opportunities. We create those opportunities by faith. We create those opportunities by faith. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I've been confessing for my healing. I've been confessing that God meets my needs. I've been confessing all those things. Okay, that's great. But remember in Acts chapter 16, it says they prayed and. They prayed and sang praises unto God. Sometimes the only missing ingredient is singing about the mercy of God. For some, the only missing ingredient is to sing the, pra the praises of God. Yeah, I've been praising God. I've been praying. I've been confessing the word. That's great. Now start singing. When they began to sing you the praise, that's when the Lord said, ambush me. I want to share one more thing with you before I let you go. This started getting really big on the inside of me a couple of weeks ago. If you've been coming to prayer school, you know that we've been praying Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1 for a long time. But those of you that don't come to prayer school, you, you don't know this. Zechariah 10, 1 says, Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Now, rain is always used as a type of the Holy Ghost. Hosea 6, verse 3 says, He'll come unto us as the rain, as the former rain in the latter rain. So it says that where it says ask of the Lord rain, it's talking about ask for a move of the Holy Ghost. Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. That means the last days. Folks, anybody that's not convinced that we're in the last days needs to take another look. So we're meeting those qualifications. Ask the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Here's what he said he'll do. So shall he make bright clouds. King James says bright clouds. It literally means lightnings. It's talking about a display of power. If you ask for a move of the Holy Ghost, he'll give you a display of power. Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. The them popped out at me for the last, I don't know, three weeks ago. So shall he give them showers of rain. So shall he make bright clouds, displays of power, and give them showers of rain. Who's the them? I never had seen that before. Folks, I've been praying this since 1980. When Brother Hagin started having prayer meetings about Zechariah 10.1, I've been praying this for 30 years, and I never saw them before. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain. Who's the them he's talking about? Well, we've been praying for, for the move of God around the world. So what does that mean? Does that mean he'll give them showers of rain? Yeah, I'm sure it does. 
But the them he's talking about are the ones that are doing the asking. Ask of the Lord rain. So shall he give them bright clouds or displays of power and give them showers of rain. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm in the middle of the prayer meeting over there several weeks ago. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And from that moment, I'm still praying around the world. I'm still praying for a move of God in different countries and different continents. But all of a sudden, I mean instantly, I began to see the rain's falling on Foothill Family Church. The rain is falling on Foothill Family Church. What does that mean? It means bright clouds. It means grass in the field. It means power. It means fruit. Results. I don't know how to tell you certain things. I don't know how to... I don't know how to convey certain things to you. Because if you say some things... Some people are going to be thinking, well, I'm talking about myself and this is all about you. And and folks, it's so not about me, you wouldn't imagine. But honest to goodness, I don't sit back and try to figure out what am I going to teach here? What am I going to teach here? What am I going to do after that? What series am I going to go to next? I don't do that. I preach from inspiration or teach from inspiration. I very rarely have notes. I very rarely have an idea of what I'm going to do. I have no clue what I'm going to teach in healing school this afternoon. That's how close to the wire I work. I don't know. It's not accidental that we're talking about the mercy of God at the time that we are. It's not accidental that we're ministering on the mercy of God at the time that the Lord ministers to me about the rain falling on Foothill Family Church. This is not by accident. Now, so that may mean nothing to some people. I understand this may just be me taking up your time to get to the restaurant. I don't know. But it's not accidental. It's not accidental. It's not spectacular, but it's supernatural. You want to see the glory of God fall in your life? Start singing the mercy of God. You want to see signs and wonders in your life? Signs and wonders to deliver? I mean, things set you free from things maybe you've been bound with for years? Start singing the mercy of God. You want to see healing manifest in your life? Start singing the mercy of God. You want to see provision? Oh, folks, if I could tell you, just in the faces that I see in the crowd, if I could tell you certain things that are in the works, there's about five or six people in this room, this room right now, that if any one of those five or six things happened, came to pass, deals closed, it would change the makeup of our whole church. It would change everything about what we're able to do to reach people. There's a bunch of these things. You think that's coincidence? I don't. Because they're all coming to a head at one point. And they're all coming to a head for the last day work. Oh, Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for your mercy. Father, it hadn't been in vain. We know there have been some things that people have been holding on to for a long time, believing you for for a long time. But Lord, as we praise you for your mercy, I thank you for closing those deals. I thank you for bringing them to pass. 
I thank you that the rain is falling on Foothill Family Church. In the name of Jesus. 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 Folks, I love you guys. You're my family. Thank you for caring about the things of God. I believe with all my heart. I believe with all my heart that there are people in this room that are going to take hold of the truth that they've been taught for years and years. And this year, things are going to change. They'll change their workplace. They'll change their neighborhoods. I believe it with all my heart. I believe that's part of the bright clouds. I believe it's a part of the bright clouds. Thank you, Lord, for these people. Thank you for directing them. Thank you for guiding them. Thank you for ordering their steps. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.